we are back. We kind of ended on a slight downer uh, on the last segment, so let's let's bring up the uh, the mood here a bit. On the editorial page of the Sacramento Bee, Stuart Leavenworth uh, asked people to join the ranks of citizen journalists some weeks back. Talking about a previous uh, editorial piece by Dr. Nathan Fairman, Leavenworth said, A doctor at UC Davis Medical Center, Fairman had not written for the Bee before. He wasn't a professional journalist. But he was angered by what he believed was an injustice that was overlooked in our community. As an ER doctor, he was in a unique position to chronicle what was happening. As an editorial page editor, I wish I could find more Nathan Fairman's. No, I'm not looking for doctors to fill our pages. I'm looking for unexpected voices. I'm looking for people of various occupations and backgrounds who can write with passion and personal knowledge of what they know best. Are you one of those? If you're not sure, you should find out. Writing commentary is tougher than writing a letter. Your piece must have a structure. and must command a reader's attention from the opening sentence. It must be honest. It must be accurate. It can't be filled with paragraphs of figures that are difficult to verify. Op-ed columns take various forms. Some are funny. Some are indignant. Some are explanatory. The best ones share a common trait. They tell you something you didn't already know, and they tell it from the heart. Well, we certainly encourage the same thing on this program. We hope some of you listening out there will uh, take up uh, that offer of Mr. Leavenworth and see if you can't get an op-ed piece in the B. And, uh, you know, drop us a line, too, at info at radioparallax.com. Last week, Bruce did send us an email asking if we'd considered uh, someone he recommended for our program. And uh, we're taking a look at that. And I got to say, over the months and years, we have followed many leads uh, from you, dear listener. And on numerous occasions, people that wrote to us uh, got on the program, dovetailing with our uh, favorable review of that Goldman Sachs piece by Greg Gordon. Uh, Sue Both Jane of Davis wrote the Sacramento Bee and said, These past few weeks, we've seen original investigative reporting of scandalous and wasteful misdeeds in the University of California, Davis. Saying, these past few weeks, we've seen original investigative reporting of scandalous and wasteful misdeeds in UC Davis's violence reports, the Natomas development permit process, the excessive state vehicle purchases, the CalPERS Apollo pipeline, and numerous others. I thankfully salute the B reporters for showing us, inarguably, why and how dearly we need a free press. What else could ever make the so-called ordinary people learn about our failing democratic institutions? Echoing the same sentiment was Rick Van Geldern from Sacramento, who said, Kudos to Sacramento B for the recent investigative journalism articles into careless and excessive government spending, political missteps, and the special good old boy favoritism. Exposure of these issues can only help local and state governments operate more effectively for the citizens they serve. Keep up the good work. Yes, indeed. We, we, we thank the reporters out there that do their job day in and day out and hope that a lot of you will become citizen journalists. Some other people we think we also ought to thank, well, as written about by Philip Reese and Steve Wigan in the SACB, and no, we're not taking any pay or cutback, kickbacks from the B. But uh, they've been doing some good work lately, and we want, to, uh, we want to give them a pat in the back. Article recently titled, Few Defy Capital Party Lines, worth a comment or two. We like to think in this country that um, the wheels of government, 
as outlined in our national and state constitutions, that determine how things get done. Unfortunately, uh, how things get done often depends on gangs. In the case of America, the gangs are called the Democratic and Republican Parties. Article outlines how certain legislators are actually uh, willing to go out and vote their conscience or, or vote their logic or whatever you want to call it. Heading the list, Senator Abe Maldonado of Santa Maria. Senator Maldonado is a Republican, but he's been willing to vote against his party 42% of the time. Unfortunately, he's one of only three legislators who vote against party lines more than 20% of the time. The other two are Senator Lou Correa from Santa Ana and Assemblywoman Allison Huber of El Dorado Hills. They're both Democrats, but they're willing to vote against what their party tells them to do 30 and 26% of the time, respectively. Winning the award for Robot Legislator of the Year apparently is Assemblywoman Julia Brownlee from Santa Monica, who voted against her party 0% of the time. Out of 657 votes, she voted the way the party told her to every time. By the way, there was a five-way tie for second place among the Democrats, uh, all of whom cast one vote against their party out of 657 In fact, we have to kind of pay a left-handed compliment to some of the Republicans in the legislature. The most loyal Republicans weren't as loyal as the Democrats. Of course, there weren't exactly mavericks either. Assemblyman Chuck DeVore of Irvine voted against the Republican Party five times out of 657. Note in the article that uh, the writers noted that a lot of legislative votes are really no-brainers that everyone endorses. Of course, included on that list uh, about a decade ago was the legislative package that deregulated California's energy supply, which led to the looting of the state treasury back in 2001 with all these games played by Enron and other other energy delivering companies, mostly from Texas. That ill-advised bill passed the legislature without a single (laughs) dissenting vote. So the lesson there, I guess, that everyone agreeing it's a good idea doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea. Anyway, the punchline to all this is we need some reform of the two-party system in this country. It's been this correspondent's observation that every time a a new party in this country starts to gain a little traction, (laughs) the the two parties tend to collaborate in knocking it out of the box. Witness the Reform Party, which started with Ross Perot in 1992, nominating Pat Buchanan in the year 2000. Witness the Libertarian Party, which is making great uh, great headway back in the 80s, all of a sudden finding all of its candidates appearing suspiciously like Republicans. On this point, people as, uh, as different in their politics as George Wallace and Ralph Nader both agree. In what is one of my favorite political quotes, uh, back in 1968, George Wallace said, There's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. <laughs> of course... Ralph Nader took up the same viewpoint in the year 2000, and as a result, we got the George W. Bush presidency. We believe there was more than a dime's worth of difference between that and what would have been the Al Gore administration. In fact, probably about a trillion dollars worth of difference in terms of uh, money thrown down the Iraq rat hole. We did disclaimer already, didn't we, Mr. McMillan? (laughs) Yes. Good. All right, we only have a few minutes left. Let's do at least one obituary and a little bit of uh, science. I'd like to talk about the passing of Richard Sonnefeld, a translator at the Nuremberg Trials, who was written up in The Economist. But uh, we're going to postpone that, along with uh, the passing of musician Norton Buffalo. 
investigative journalist Jack Nelson, and instead talk about Soupy Sales. Soupy Sales was a legendary slapstick comedian most famous for taking 20,000 pies in the face during his comedy career. Sales liked to boast that he created the most outrageous minute of ad-lib in television history. New Year's Day in 1965, with about a minute of airtime left, Sales told his young viewers to find their parents' wallets and pull out those green pieces of paper with pictures of presidents on them. Send them to me, Sales said, and I'll send you a postcard from Puerto Rico. Although apparently only a few dollars were actually mailed, many viewers complained that he was encouraging children to steal. ABC as network suspended him, but public protests quickly led to his reinstatement. Surprisingly, Soupy Sales, who was born Milton Supman, earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and worked as a scriptwriter for a local radio station, did stand-up comedy in nightclubs, and eventually became a disc jockey. We refer you to our favorite blog, News From Me, by Mark Evanier, which has quite a, quite a few pieces on Soupy Sales, whom Mr. Evanier admired greatly, and we would encourage you to check those out. And if you do plan to hit somebody in the face with a pie, take a play out of the Soupy Sales playbook and use shaving cream, not whipped cream. Shaving cream doesn't spoil, and it cleans up really easily. Interesting piece in The Economist magazine in their books and arts section, a review of a biography of Jacques Cousteau. I don't know that I'm going to read the book, but the review was pretty darn interesting. I would note that Edward McMillan, who does have a commercial diving license, has volunteered to read the book and report on it for this program. I know I can share one of his favorite anecdotes, and while he was at the diving school in New Jersey, and one wag in the audience was giving the instructor a little bit of grief, the teacher decided to deflate all of his boasting about this guy's diving accomplishments by saying, well, I guess you're a real Jacques custodian. If you're of a certain age, you certainly grew up with the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I mean, I can, I can hear it in my head now. As Falco prepares the diving saucer, we anxiously await his arrival, knowing that at any moment, our azure cave could become an icy tomb. Well, the article points out that Cousteau's legacy is, shall we say, mixed. If you consult the Index of A History of Oceanography, which was a scholarly account published at the very height of Cousteau's fame, you will find no entries at all under his name. In fact, the article makes it clear Cousteau always had an eye on how things looked on camera. He wanted the technology to look good and felt he was not competing with universities or research institutions, but with James Bond. Noted the reviewers, every episode made some claim to serious scientific purpose, but the demands of television docudrama meant that sharks, dolphins, whales, and buried treasure made very frequent appearances on the schedule. Divers would descend, smiling and joking, then suddenly there was danger. But you could be sure that in the end, the divers would be back around the dining table, the wine would flow, and up on the bridge, lit only by the glow of the radar scanner, Captain Cousteau would be plotting course for next week's adventure. The review further notes that it may come to surprise to those who grew up with the captain to find that in the years of his great celebrity, Cousteau was rarely on board the Calypso. He had a helicopter landing pad built on the ship, which enabled him to fly in for an occasional hour or two of filming. Many episodes were actually a fricassee of archive footage spliced with more recent shots. You know, we do have a line into someone who is part of the Cousteau organization, and, and you know, doggone it, we're going to see if we can get him to say a word or two for... For you, dear listener. 
All right, two final items from the world of medicine. New York Times notes that chronic fatigue syndrome has uh, puzzled doctors for quite some time. There's about a million Americans and 17 million people around the world who complain of debilitating fatigue, pain, and depression. So far, there's been no underlying biological cause determined, but um, in what's described as a breakthrough study, researchers found that 68% of chronic fatigue patients harbored a stealthy virus called xenotropic murine leukemia virus-related virus, or XMRV, in their blood, whereas only 4% of healthy people had the virus. Like HIV, it's a retroviolet, it's a retrovirus, and of course, finding its presence in people who have chronic fatigue does not prove that it is the cause, it is the cause, but uh, research is going to look at that, because wouldn't it be something if a mix of antiretroviral drugs, which of course we've learned a lot about in the, in the HIV era, wouldn't it be something if that could be a cure or at least a treatment for chronic fatigue? Stay tuned. Final item of the day, which frankly as a physician I must dispute, is as follows. According to CNN.com, citing a London study, two-thirds of men do not adequately wash their hands after using the toilet. London researchers apparently used sensors to monitor how much soap was being used by 250,000 restroom visitors. The results, 64% of women washed with soap compared with 32% of men. Researcher Val Curtis told CNN the stark difference probably reflects the fact that some of the men were only urinating. So they think they don't need to wash their hands, even if they should. Well, as a legendary Milton Hildebrand at UC Davis said in his human sexuality course back when I was a student many years ago, the human hand is touching everything out there in the environment, meaning it's pretty much as dirty as the environment, whereas a man's penis is protected inside the clothing, out of the environment, pretty much, which caused Dr. Hildebrand to suggest that properly a man should wash his hands before, not after, urinating. And folks, in my professional medical opinion, he's right. I'd like to close with the following joke. On their first day of classes, two medical students are in the, in the restroom. As the first turns from the urinal to walk out the door, the other says, Excuse me, where'd you go to undergraduate? To which he replied, Well, I went to UC Davis. First student says, Oh, really? Well, I went to Harvard, and at Harvard, they teach us to wash our hands after we go to the urinal. To which the Davis student replied, I'll be darned. At UCD, they taught us not to pee on our hands. And in closing, gentlemen, if you do pee on your hands, be sure to use some soap and water. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, and I'm sure the friends that didn't make it today's show will be on next week. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.